Valerie Moisel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. We all have what I call the four S's, the initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order. And yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is She Dynasty. and welcome back to She Dynasty. I am so excited to be sitting down with Jessica Pastor, one of the most well-known and influential celebrity fashion stylists in Hollywood. In fact, Jessica was named one of Vogue's top 10 most powerful celebrity stylists in 2019. Pastor has dressed the Hollywood elite for many years for events such as the Academy Awards, the Emmys, Golden Globes, Grammys, and even the Met Ball. Her client list has included high-profile actors like Kate Blanchett, Annette Bening, Olivia Munn, Matt Damon, Aubrey Plaza, Uma Thurman, Sandra Bullock, John Krasinski, Emily Blunt, Christina Applegate, Jennifer Aniston, Marsha Cross, Dakota Fanning, Elle Fanning, Rachel McAdams, Kate Bosworth, Felicity Jones, and many more. She's worked on everything from films to commercials, advertising, editorial, all the way to the red carpet. She's always pushing boundaries and revealing the fashion world's limitless possibilities. She was also recently featured on the cover of The Hollywood Reporter with Emily Blunt with features an article about the 25 most powerful red carpet tastemakers. And so now I'm ready to introduce our co-host. Her name is Jordan Grossman. She's an up-and-coming stylist in the early stages of her career, and Jordan has started as a photographer's assistant when she moved to L.A. at the age of 18. She then met Elizabeth Stewart on a Vogue shoot, and she rescued her from a life of schlepping photo equipment around. Jessica works with magazines, advertisements, and musicians and hopes one day to be a red carpet stylist as well. Hi, Jordan. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, Jessica is here with us today, and we're super, super excited. Um, So Jessica and I... Hi, Jessica, by the way. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing good. I am so... Excited to be here. I am so excited to have you here. I've been trying to get you here for the last five weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, So in full disclosure, Jessica and I recently met. Um, We were doing a job together. Um, She was the stylist for Olivia Munn on one of the commercials that um, I was creating for a client. And... Um, it was really interesting. And I have a little secret. When I first met you, I wasn't sure that you and I would get along, but it was so weird because I had this weird perception of you. I'm just going to be being really honest. I had this weird perception of you after like one phone call and I was like, I'm a little nervous of her, but literally within 15 minutes, I swear on my life, I called one of my colleagues, David Blacker, who mm-hmm. you met. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm obsessed with her. <laughs> I, I don't know what it was like your energy, like your warmth. You were so just like, I don't know, you and I kind of bonded really quickly. We did bond very quickly. And so I kind of really love that. And I just, it was, it was interesting. So I, as soon as I kind of got to know you and your um, your style and how you worked. I thought you and I had a lot in common and, and um, I was excited to kind of hear more about you. Yeah. You were very fun too. I loved hearing everything about you and your family and your dog and your work and everything. I loved that. Thank you. So, um, you know, I think, you know, as you know, part of what we want to hear today is how you got to where you are today. You are one of the most influential stylists there is in Hollywood And, you know, there's a lot of women who are kind of starting in their career that want to figure out how to get to where you are. And She Dynasty is all about that. And so we want to hear a bit about your journey. And I know that you didn't always, you know, it wasn't always so easy for you. And Mm -hmm. as awesome and um, powerful as you are today and what you do, you had to work really, really hard to get there and you had to overcome some really serious challenges. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And I'm excited for you to tell your story. 
So let's get started. I want to talk, um, you know, we, we talked about how, even though you've achieved success in so many people's eyes, you know, your journey to this point, um, you know, wasn't always roses in the beginning and you hit quite a few snags in your early life. And so let's start from where were you born? Well, I was born in Los Angeles. I'm a native, which is very rare. I am totally a native. Okay. And I grew up in the Echo Park area, Echo Park Silver Lake area. And yes, I always say that I'm very blessed in my adult life because anything horrible that could happen to a child happened to me. And I do believe that life is a balance, you know what I mean, for all the wonderful, great things that happen in this life. You do have to have those negative, sad, horrible Moments. Moments in your life to balance these or to appreciate the good stuff. The good stuff. Because a lot of people don't appreciate the good stuff. And you're like, you got a great life and you don't think it's good. You right. know, people want more and more and more and they don't want to work for it. Well, they just want to be given it to it. And it no, seems no, no. like, it seems like from just my experience and not that everybody is like this, but it seems like when people um, experience major trauma in their life, when they're younger, there's either two things they can do with it. And the first thing they can do is either be a victim of it, right. And have it affect their lives forever and always, um, just struggle. And, um, not that, you know, everybody doesn't struggle or they can take it and find it as their power to overcome and become great. And so you are one of those people that has clearly taken what have, what has happened to you and turned it into a positive because you talked to me about how important it was for you to tell your story and, you know, really be someone who could inspire others to, you know, to come forward as well. What I want to inspire is, and what I do want to do in my life, my mother died when I was very, very, very young. I was four years old and my father did the best that he can do, but he was, he's an alcoholic. Did you have any memory of your mother? I do have a memory of my mother. And what's really funny is I remember, I love vintage old houses, especially Spanish style houses, because that's where I remember having times with my mother. I do remember when I was two, I do remember when I was on a high chair, I remember these things. And I always think that our memories, it's so interesting that we remember as much as we can, maybe because my mother did die when I was very young. I remember those things because those are the memories that, you know, are close to my heart. And how did she pass away? She had cancer. She it was melanoma. She was a strawberry blonde with light, light skin, green eyes. And um, she was very young, obviously. Um, and she had melanoma, but eventually you die of liver cancer. Oh, I'm so um, sorry to hear that. I do remember I did visit her. I wasn't allowed. All I wanted to do was see my mother. So they eventually did allow me to go to the hospital and see her. And she had lost so much weight and she was so frail and so small. And I remember thinking, I'm so small, but she's now small. She's small. And I don't know how this happened. Um, but she ended up coming back to our house and spent a couple days with me. And I was told by my aunt that she wasn't allowed to take baths. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You could only right. that sponge point, bath or something. Sponge bath. Yeah. And I loved my bath time with my mom. So we did take a bath together, you know. And I remember touching her whole back because it had just all these little bumps on it. I guess that was the right. cancerous parts and all that. And um, to this day, that's all I do is take baths. Wow. And and I think I it is that I feel my mother, I feel her spirit or I feel her energy when I take a bath. And I do take a bath every single day. Wow. You know, and and that does it's your way of from, keeping mm -hmm. her memory alive. Of course. Beautiful. All right. So tell us about, so your father was left to raise you. Do you have so, any siblings? Yes. I don't know the timeline because my father was never a forthright man. In fact, um, I don't know how they thought that, I mean, after my mother died, my father never, ever spoke about my mother, never, ever told me about my mother. Um, I wasn't even allowed to even talk about her. Talk about her. So I never had 
I never got to mourn. I mean, as adults, we don't even understand death. Now imagine a four-year-old who loses her mother, and then I can't talk about it. Do you think he did that because he couldn't deal with it, or he didn't know how to handle it with you? I can't speak for him, and I never had a... Even though he's my father, I never felt close to my father. He's a selfish man, so I don't think it had anything to do with me. I think it had to do with him, because... As my mother was sick for a little while, because she did give birth to my brother, he found himself a healthy woman and started a relationship with her. So I have a brother that was born September, and then I have a stepsister from this other woman that was born the same year in December. So your brother is your full brother? Yes. And then my stepsister. And then a year after my mother passed... This woman comes into our lives, and she's your mother. And I'm like, no, she's your wife. Mm -hmm. My mother's in heaven. Mm -hmm. And he was an alcoholic, and that's where the abuse started. You know, the physical abuse. My dad was very verbally and very physical abuser. I mean, he would hit me with a belt. He would throw me against walls. I think one time... I mean, I was not allowed to get anything less than a B, and I got a D in conduct because I would talk to everybody in class. And my dad literally, when he got home at midnight, took me out of bed, beat me up, and threw me outside to sleep with my dog. Maybe that's where my love of dogs come because I cuddled with my dog in his doghouse, and that's where I slept. Thank God we didn't live in New York. It was December. It's still cold, and you don't do that to a third grader. You know, did the same happen with your brother as well? You know, my dad did hit my brother, but there were times that me being me at a very young age, and I was very protective and I'm still protective of everyone around me. I would just like grab my brother, push him. And I would just let my dad take out his anger out on me because there was no way my brothers. You wanted to protect your little brother. Of course, of course. I do remember this one time, I don't know if you know that when people have boys, especially they say this, when they have issues or something to do with their mother, they stutter. My brother would stutter. He was little. He was two when she passed. And my brother would stutter. And my dad said, what time is it? And just my dad talking, got this little baby boy you know, scared. And he said 24 hours and he kept on saying 24 hours, 24 hours. So my dad got the belt and started hitting them. One, two, three, by the fifth time, I just couldn't take it. And I knew what was going to happen. He was going to literally hit my brother 24 times with a belt. So that's when I grabbed him and I pushed him and I said, just do it to me. You know what I mean? Because he's a baby. You know, how do you do that? But my dad was intense. You know, he was an alcoholic. And then he would either get very, very angry, very angry, or he would be the opposite to loving, which it's either one of them. I would prefer the anger over the trying to hold me or try to kiss me or try to... Is that one of those scenarios that after he would hit you and he would kind of go to the opposite extreme? Oh, God, Yes. He would always feel bad. Yeah, of course. Abusers tend to do that. Oh. Yeah. And you're like, if you look at this it's person, it's confusing and you're for like, a lot of people, though. It's confusing when you're a child, but as you grow up, you're like, I just hate this person. You know what I mean? I never, how can I say this? Because I am a warm, loving person. I just didn't love my father. I just never loved my father. I think. I was very angry at a very, after my mother died and he didn't want to talk about it. I was very, very, I'm sure angry. And I think there was a lot of anger and hatred because he just wouldn't want to talk about my mother. I got reacquainted by my aunt and my cousin about five, six years ago. And that's when I found out where my mother was buried Oh, you didn't know any of this? Oh, no. I didn't even know her name. What? 
I did not know my mother's name. When you run away from your home, you don't run away with your passport and you don't run away with your birth certificate. Right. Well, let's, you know? let's, let's get to that. So you, you endured the abuse for many years and you told me that you ended up leaving home at a very, very young age. Mm-hmm. How old were you when you left? 14. At 14 years old, mm-hmm. you decided. Well, I think I ran away a few more t- you, times before then. But, but you finally left yeah, at 14. Yeah. So that was it. Yeah. And where did you go? There was a boy. <laughs> there was a boy. <laughs> there was a boy. And I stayed with him and his mother. You know, I would, at that point, I would couch surf. Right. You know? You did what you had to do to yeah, survive. You had to do what you did. But I have to tell you, it's really funny. It doesn't matter how old you are, obviously. When you have freedom, you don't think, how am I going to support myself? How am I going to feed myself? You're like, I'm free. I am free. So that Nobody was, can hurt me. So that was an incredible shift in your life. Mm-hmm. You finally had freedom. Mm-hmm. But you know what's really funny? Even though I had that freedom, I did miss, this is also intense, I did miss that my father would hit me. Yeah, I my, did hit that. It's I did so miss interesting that. you say that. I hear that all the time. I hear that all the you time. You know, the first time my boyfriend got physical with me, he didn't hit me. He just grabbed my arm. There was warmth in my belly. Oh my gosh. You know what I mean? And I was, I think I was like 15 then. Because that's, there, but because, because that's what you grew up with. That's what you knew. I thought that that was love. Yeah. You know, you have to get yourself out of that mindset and saying like, this is not love. None of this is love. No one loved me. So have you finally gotten to a place where you know that that's not what love is? Or is it still something you struggle with? Oh no. I very, very quickly... Before I even turned 18, I realized nobody was going to touch me. Nobody was going to hit me. So how did you nobody transition gonna... from feeling that it was a warm feeling to realizing that this is not okay? Right there and then. When I felt that warm feeling, I went, oh no, this is wrong. Right there and then. There's something in me just clicked. And I said, oh my God, this is not healthy. This is crazy. This is really crazy. The wonderful thing about this boy that I dated was his mother. She already knew that I was broken. And she said, you should go to therapy. And I, you know, I did. I I figured out ways. I didn't have money, but there was always, you call a number and you find, you know, something, someone free that will talk to you. And I did. I never told him about the sexual abuse because that was another thing that was happening in my home. And I think that's the reason I, I actually, I think I could put up with my father hitting me. I don't think that I could put up, I couldn't put up with the sexual abuse by the hands of my uncle. But again, it's true. They groom you at a very young age. And what's really funny, and you and I were talking about this, the Michael Jackson with those two men, everyone's like, they don't know if it happened or not. It did happen. Yeah. Because I, mean, I, be- I believe that I, when can, I watched it. I can, you, you love, you, you, the only way you could accept what's going on with you and your body and your feelings is you are in love with the person that is abusing you. You know, when I was watching the Michael Jackson documentary, wow, did I believe them, but they explained it so beautifully. You know, the fact that they, at a, such a young age, were introduced to something that they didn't even know what it was. So nobody taught them it was wrong. Nobody taught them that it was, you know, something they shouldn't be doing. Um, you know, so it was probably a similar situation for you. Well, I think that because I had hatred towards my father, I just did not like this man. And did your I, fa- did your father know that your uncle was sexually abusing you? I thought no, but I'll get into that part a little later. Okay. Um, I think. Because I didn't like anything about my father. To this day, I don't like guys that are, you know, tan skin, darker hair, darker eyes. I don't like that. I think they're sinister. And that's what my father looks like. I think I loved my uncle because he was kind and sweet to me. And every time... He didn't hit you. Oh, no. He did not hit me. And, you know... It wasn't about buying me presents. It was like he taught me how to ride a bike. Um, he taught me how to, you know, like books. You know, he really liked He acted me. like a father. Mm-hmm. Music, loved music, wanted me to, you know, listen to music. 
And that was one of the things that my mother would do with me is listen to music. And so these were things that made me feel safe. But again, they're grooming you. They know how to groom you. And the sexual abuse happened again when I was 11. It went on for a few years. Until you finally left. And yeah, I I don't... What made you leave finally? What was the straw that broke the camel's back that you, you know, finally decided that you had enough? I was very, 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 very angry and very, very upset about this whole thing. When I started a relationship, is that what you call it? With this person who was raping me, for lack of a better word, um, I thought I was going to marry him when I turned 18. So I would have these little daydreams in my head that we were going to get married and we were going to have children and we were going to leave and get our own little house. And I was going to get a Spanish style house with this beautiful window, look out the window and look at all the beautiful flowers, just like I would do with my mother. Now, I truly, now that I'm older and you realize the patterns of these abusers, predators, was it that I don't know if he was, he himself was pulling away from me because I was no longer a child and he's a pedophile. Right. You know what I mean? Or was it me who really knew that this was wrong and I couldn't handle the fact that this was like gross. And I was trying to explain this to my friend who she asked me a very blatant question. She said, so you lost your virginity with him. I'm like, yes. Um, how did it feel? I don't remember. I can remember having sex with all my boyfriends, how it was, how it felt, how we did it. I don't remember the feeling of having sex with my uncle because you do block these things out. So I th I think it was a combination of me intuitive knowing that he was pulling away from me, not because I knew that he was a pedophile, just knew that he was pulling away from me. And again, when you're, especially when you're 14 and you're a girl and you're blossoming into your own sexuality, you, it's like, oh my God, it, remember when you start your period and you dirty your pants, you're like so embarrassed and they're so shameful. So you think, oh, he doesn't like me anymore because I'm not pretty. You know, it had nothing to do with being pretty or not. It was the fact that he's a pedophile. So that was another, oh, there's another person that doesn't love me. My father didn't love me. This man now doesn't love me anymore. So I don't know. I think it was a combination of me knowing that I was shameful of dating this man. Was it dating? I don't know. And also I probably felt that he was, pull now that I think about it, as an adult, he was pulling away from me. Right. So this is kind of a strange question at this point, but I kind of have to ask, like, was fashion ever a part of your childhood? Was there anything, any inclination that this would be a, a place that you might end up when you were a kid? Did I never, you like to dress up when you were a child? No. I think where my fashion comes in was the only connection I also had for my mother was all her clothes that would, you know, that was at the bait in the, in our basement. And I would go through all of them and see the shoes and all her clothes. And they were so beautiful and everything from the sixties and seventies. She you know had nice I mean? taste. She had all of that. And I loved that. And my aunt who, okay. So my father remarried this woman, had a sister. It's her husband that sexually abused me, but she was a tailor. So she wouldn't have me come to work with her on Saturdays. And I would just watch her sew all these beautiful clothes and we would make clothes for my Barbie. So it wasn't about me getting dressed up. It was more of me always seeing other people's clothes. Right. And while this was all happening, this, all this sexual abuse, I'm just going to go back to it because it's weird not to ask. You mm -hmm. never told anybody? Never told anybody. Dude, the first time I opened and was able to talk to anybody and say I was sexually abused was when I turned 30. Wow. 30. Uh -huh. That's incredible. You know, I tried to talk to one of my boyfriends about it and he actually told me that I was lying. Oh, yeah. I was like, whoa. Okay. Wow. Well, I was okay. right. You know? So okay. never even brought it up again. All right. So let's now jump forward. So you're in your teens now. 
Um, tell us what was one of, one of your first jobs or your earliest jobs you could remember. I worked at a children's store. Okay. I think I was like 15 years old and I think I fit into all the children's clothes as so well. So it was a clothing store. Yes. And you were selling clothes? In Santa Monica. Okay. Yes, I was. Okay. You yes, I was. Working retail. Mm-hmm. Great first job. Great first job, part-time. And then I would date these men who liked young girls who would like take care of me. They were my boyfriends. And then I did meet when I was like 16 and a half, 17, I did meet this guy. And he basically said that he was not going to support me. He was old. He wasn't older. He was like in his early twenties, mid twenties. And I'm like, okay, but he would sell weed. I tried to do that, but I was really bad at it. Okay. I don't even smoke weed. So I didn't understand. I was bad at that. I can't even give you a glass of wine here. No. (laughs) And so he said, you're going to have to wait tables. That's the only way you're going to make money. I'm like, okay. I'm like, but I've never waited tables and I don't have a resume or I don't have it. What am I going to put in my application? Because back then it was not resumes. It was application. Right. Oh, you're right. I never thought about that. So he gave me three jobs. In New York, I had never, ever, ever been to New York. I'm like, how are you? How am I going to tell these people that I worked in New York? He says, "Don't worry, they're my friends." So the first place I went, because we lived in the West Side, was Marina Del Rey, this restaurant, fancy restaurant. Don't even know, remember the name of it. And I write these three things on my application, memorized it, and the manager goes, "Wow, very impressive." Oh. Do you love New York? Love New York. Where did you live? Near Central Park. And um, he said, hold on one second. I go, where are you going? He goes, I'm going to call your references. Oh, boy. (laughs) And you're all of 16 and a half. You're terrified and scared. And I literally thought he's going to come back and I'm going to go to jail. Right, because you don't know. Because I don't know any of these people. I am going to go to jail. That's how young and naive you are. Like, I'm going to go to jail because I lied on this application. Comes back about 10. And by the way, it was the longest 10 minutes of my life. I think I was sweating. I, I, I You didn't run out of there. You just stayed. No, I didn't. Ready to to go to jail. I'm going to go to jail. (laughs) You were ready. He comes back and he says, you're hired. They love you. You are amazing. They said you were the best waitress they've ever had. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And I'm looking at them like... Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Never been to New York. Never worked these places. Don't even know these people. So he goes, you can start dinner. You don't even have to train or anything. You can start. And I go, oh, no. We are, I cannot start dinner. I'm like, that's just not fair for the other wait staff. I go, I need to start lunch and I do need training because waiters in New York are different than waiters in Los Angeles. And he goes, okay. Um, my boss was, I forgot again, I forgot this woman. Maybe her name's Susan. I don't know. She did tell me I was a mediocre waitress, Okay, which was fine because I've never waited. So being a mediocre waitress when you've never waited tables is a good thing. Being a mediocre waitress when you've worked with these three best restaurants in New York, not so good. Right. So I worked there for a little while. And then um, when I was done with that and I was now moved to West Hollywood, I got a job at Jerry's Deli. So you were a waitress for a while. Oh, I was. Well, I waited tables from 16 to 20. Wow. So no fashion this whole time. No, no, no. I really thought I was going to be an attorney. I wanted to be a lawyer. Oh, my goodness. You know what I mean? I didn't know what kind of lawyer, but I wanted to be a lawyer. Did you finish high school? Did not finish high school. But, but still wanted to be a lawyer. I still wanted to be a lawyer. Ambitious. I, I like it. I figured I was going to do that. I was going to be a lawyer. Okay. So, so so tell us the moment, like, how did fashion come into your life? Where did, let's tell me about how that shift happened. Well, when you're a waitress and you're working in Hollywood, you meet all these people, met actors, Casting people. At producers. Jerry's Deli? Huh? Was it at Jerry's Deli? At Jerry's Deli, yes. And I had this bubbly personality. You could only imagine at 16, 
And I would bounce around and do, I could do seven or eight tables. I was a great waitress. I made sure that everyone always had something in front of their face so they could eat or munch or pickles or whatever. And everyone, you should be an actress. You should be an actress. You should be an actress. So I did. I studied acting and I would go, I went to this acting class where I paid $275 a month. And remember, like 28 years ago, 27 years ago. Not cheap back then. Not cheap, but I did it. But they wouldn't let you audition until they told you that they were, you were ready to audition. So when I was around 20, I wanted to audition. So I went, I guess it was like um, pilot season. Mm -hmm. So I auditioned that whole week. I was going to audition for a bunch of things. I went on three auditions after the third one. I said, I don't want to be, I don't want to be an actress. I don't want to do this. I mean, I would memorize my lines. I would know my script backwards and forward. The minute I was in front of people, I would forget everything. I mean, I think it just wasn't for you. It was not for me. Uh, Stage fright was crazy. Okay. And I didn't know what I was going to do. At that point, I was working at a bar. Art Davis, who's still a friend of mine, hired me. He knew I was underage, but he still hired me. And thank God, because literally I could, I bought my car, I paid my rent. Like I was like, he hired you to, to do what? To work at the bar? I was a waitress. I was a cocktail waitress. Okay. You know, and you made money. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was this little hole in the wall where you made between 250 and a thousand a night. Nice. You know what I mean? And I supported myself and that was wonderful. So I'm like, mm, not going to be a waitress. Did you, have, did you have healthy relationships in your 20s? Oh, no. I don't think I still. I think I'm so gun shy when it comes to relationships and men. I mean, I wish to God I could be a lesbian because I love women. I love talking to women. I I love the camaraderie of women. I love their body, obviously. I love to dress them. But like I always say, even at 19, when I did drugs and drank, I still don't want to make out with a girl. You know, I still love a boy. Right. So I'm like, what am I going to do? And I said, I think I'm going to open a bar because I'm really good as a cocktail waitress. I make money. I know all these people. So I calculated all my, how much I would make. And I'm like, oh, I could save up to be a owner of a bar when I'm 27 years old. That's so old. I can't wait till I'm 27. Oh my God. That's when I'm going to start my life. Joke. So I said, I'm not going to open a bar. I'm just not going to open a bar. And so I prayed. Weird, strange. I prayed. I said, God, give me a sign. I need to know what I'm going to do with my life. You, I mean, throw this girl a bone. I still say that. Right. Please throw me a bone. And about two weeks after that, a friend of a friend said, there's this guy, he's a stylist. I go, what's that? He does magazines. He does advertising. I love that you didn't know what it was. You know, he needs an assistant. I go, okay, I'll do it. His name was Calvin. I worked for $25 a day and I was his assistant. I would come in at seven. I would leave at 11. Anything he wanted me to do, I would do. And I just did everything. I drove him around. So the same I, work ethic you have now is the same when you were that age. Well, it hasn't changed. No. Because I saw you in action and I yeah, was like so impressed with you. My work ethic has not changed, but I had three jobs at 17, 18, well, you 19. had no choice. You I had, had three hustle. jobs. You had to hustle you know and I mean? take care of yourself. So I've always, as long as I have one day off a week or one day off every two weeks, I'm fine, you know? So I was in his assistant for two and a half years. You know, I made no money, but I had saved a lot of money, cocktail waitressing, waitressing, that I was fine. So you got this job as um, someone's assistant. Mm -hmm. So this was obviously a big spark for you. Mm -hmm. Like all of a sudden... Something felt good. You liked what you were doing. You were excited by it. Were you good at it? I was wonderful at it. I worked from 7 to 11, did not complain. But were you good <laughs> at it because of your work ethic or you had like a natural knack for fashion? Or I, I did have a natural knack for fashion. And he was such, they don't make those kind of stylists anymore. What was he like? You know what I mean? 
he was one of those, he's like a real editorial New York stylist. The, the way they scrunched up sleeves, the way they put up, the Colors, way they, right. I mean, it was so beautiful. I would, I would love seeing his fingers when he moved things or when we were at a shoot. And that explains working, your, that's, you know, it's so interesting you say that because I was noticing when I was on set with you, your attention to detail, like you were obsessing over every detail. And I kept saying, no one's going to notice that. And you were like, no, 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 it has to be perfect. It has to be perfect. Well, it ha- it has to, you know what I mean? You you have to be prideful for your job. Yeah. You have to, you know, or don't do it. Right. If, if I'm not, I don't want to do things halfway in anything in my life or don't do it. So next job after that. So my boss, Calvin was working with Kim Basinger when she was doing all her press and premiere for LA Confidential. You have to remember back then, I think it was 98, 97, Mm -hmm. there weren't celebrity stylists. There, There was not a lot. So we were helping her. She had this idea of what she wanted. And at this point, my boss was just, I, I was doing everything. I was just doing everything. Which, as you know, as an assistant, you guys do all the grunt work. And, you know, some you guys do the ordering. You do everything. And then the stylist just walks in. I don't do that. I'm, I still work. I wake up. I saw you unpacking yeah. boxes. I saw you I taping do. boxes. I, I saw you packing it. boxes. I saw you carrying I w- boxes. I still, my assistant, yeah, I, I work in tandem with her. I saw you that. know, I'm the first one in my office. I'm the last one in my office. It's, just um, it's my business. So Kim calls me up and says, I want you to style me. And I go, yeah, we are. She goes, no, I want you to style me. What happened was she got nominated for a golden globe and I don't know what my boss was doing. She maybe felt like his attention wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So I said, I know exactly what you want. I said, Kim, can you give me about 45 minutes and let me figure this out because he had done the fitting. It did not go well. So I remember there was an Amsala. There was a designer named Amsala. She was in town for the golden globes so I called her up. I said, if Kim Bis, can I please get this dress? Can I please cut it below the knee? Um, and then I went to, I don't know where I got one of my old little sweaters. I had these old little pearls and like my only pair of Manola Blahniks. Cause I, I always believe that you should have one great pair of shoes instead of 10 janky shoes. So I had my one little pair of Manola Blahniks and, um, I called Kim and I said, we're, we're at the tailor shop. Can you meet me there? And she goes, yes. And my boss was there as well, but I did it all. So I go over there, put the dress on. I tell her, I want to cut it over here. I put a little sweater. Obviously this is not the sweater you're going to wear. We're going to get you a brand new one. These are my own. They're not real pearls, but we'll get you real ones. I know this is not your size, but this is the look that you want, right? She puts it on. She goes, this is exactly the look I want. So I call Amsala and I go, we're getting your dress. She's wearing it to the Golden Globes. And back then they're like, you ruined my designs. I go, (laughs) but that's what we do. I go and find her like a little sweater. I go to, I think it was Neil Lane. And I, I actually, I went to go pull jewelry from him today. So I get pearls from him. I go and I don't know where, I think I bought I got her, I purchased a pair of Manola Blahnik little mules for her because back then, I think Jimmy Choo started the year after hmm. and got her a clutch and she loved it. And we she got her a little ponytail. So this is the green dress that she wore? No, oh, no, 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 no. So that happened. And then um, she wanted me to style her for the Oscars. Oh, and so, oh, sorry. That wasn't for the Oscars. No, no, no. Got that it. was for the Golden Globes. Oh, understood. But okay. My boss and I were doing it together. Okay. And Minnie Driver was getting a lot of recognition for Goodwill Hunting that same year. Mm-hmm. And Titanic was also nominated. And Linda Hamilton, they called me for her. So my first time styling by myself for the Academy Awards not even styling. I had, I had not been styling by myself. My first job 
as a stylist on my own was the Academy Awards. Oh, my gosh. And I had Minnie Driver. I had Kim Basinger, both nominated, and Linda Hamilton, who was representing, going with her husband, um, James Cameron, for Titanic. Okay, so we need to stop for a second because I think this is a really important moment for everyone to Mm -hmm. kind of listen to because your story is similar to mine where somebody one day recommended I try something. For me, it was like, you should try advertising. I'm like, what's that? (laughs) And you literally said the same thing when someone said, you should try styling, and you said, what's that? There's often, there's going to be many times in your young career where someone comes to you because they see something in you that um, you have the right fit for. And when somebody comes to you and says, you should try something, I think the the lesson is look, try in, it. look into it. You know, even if you don't know what it is, look into it. When people offer you something, of course, you're going to be nervous. Of course, you're going to be scared. Those are great feelings to have because they're going to push you. Don't be afraid. The worst that can happen, you're going to fuck up. That's the worst. That's the worst. Or you're not going to like it and you're going to try something Or you're not going to like it or try something else. But That's like, the worst. But you literally like said okay and within a couple of years were, well, what I did were styling was, on the, mm-hmm, for I, the Academy I Awards. Called, I called my boss and I told him these people want to work with me. He got angry at me. He was drunk. Pattern there. And the next day he said, if you want to go do them, do them, but you're never, you can't, you cannot come back as my assistant. And I did feel that I needed six more months as someone's assistant before I went on my own. So what'd you do? I took the three jobs. I did it. He said, go do it. But I wish that he would have given, allowed me to do that and then come back as an assistant for uh, another six months. But he wouldn't let months. you. No, he no, was no, mad. No, no, he was angry. That's so, understandable. I, I get it. I get it. So all of a sudden you've been thrown into to this Oscar craziness. And then, okay. And then, and now. So now I'm doing Minnie Driver. And so Minnie calls me up and says, I went to the, the award show. And I think it was the SAGs. Or maybe even the Golden Globes. I do not remember. And she goes, I need the most beautiful dress because I just broke up with my boyfriend, Matt Damon. Oh, she needs to look good. And I just need to look beautiful. (laughs) And I go, okay, I'll find you something gorgeous to wear. I I love that that was the motivation. Not that she was going to be on the red carpet. (laughs) So she calls me up the day later because she's in New York. She goes, I found my dress at Barney's. I go, really? She goes, yes. I need you to call this designer, Richard Tyler. I go, I know Richard. He's in Los Angeles. He has this boutique in, on Beverly. And I want to wear this. This is the number. Well, because back then, right. we couldn't send a text message right, with right. a picture. He gives me all the everything. Of course, what do I do? Jump in my car. I run over to Richard Tyler. It's a wedding dress. You hated it? Oh, a wedding dress. You ain't going to get a man back. (laughs) I broke up with you. He don't want to see you in a wedding dress. That's hilarious. He doesn't want to see you in a wedding dress. So So now you're like at a crossroads. You have to decide whether to tell her that you hate the dress. Exactly. No. Now I would say, you're not wearing a wedding dress. I'm going to find you something better. Back then, you're a baby. You don't, this is your first major job. So I make, so Richard Tyler makes me the dress. Wrong color, the first one. Which is probably good. Mm-hmm. Makes me another dress. Wrong size. So I start getting nervous on Thursday or Wednesday. Back then, my tenacity, I'm going through a Vogue in Asia. And I see this little tiny picture of this really pretty new girl, Cameron Diaz, wearing this gorgeous Givenchy by Alexander McQueen green dress. So I call again. There was no computers. Four one one, and I ask for four one one. Yes, four one one. Four one one. Does that exist anymore? No, no. We're gonna call it. And after I call and, find out. and I call and I say London, England. Alexander McQueen. They give me this number. Again, I don't know the difference between time because I've right. never been to London right, in my right. life. So I call. Hello. I go, yes, may I please speak to Alexander McQueen? <laughs> this That's is awesome. Lee. This is Lee. And I go, hi, um, Mr. McQueen, there's this dress that I really love that I saw in this Asia 
um, Vogue. It's um, your designs from Givenchy. And there's this actress I'm dressing for this award show. And I really love this green lace dress so much. It goes, okay, young lady, this is my home you're calling. And it is 12 midnight. It's hilarious. Um, I'm going to give you a number. Call my office tomorrow morning. And I'll send it out to you. I'm like, okay. So I called in the morning, spoke to somebody. They got my address. Little did I know that I had to follow up, didn't follow up. Friday morning, I get this box bigger than my whole apartment. And this dress is humongous. The train came, was probably 50 feet. This gorgeous, magical, gorgeous dress. Mind you, I wanted it for many, but now they're making me my third Richard Tyler dress. So we do our fitting at around five o'clock and the zipper is on is horrible. It's, it's just horrible. And she's like, I can't wear this dress. Richard is there doing the fitting he goes, don't worry, we're going to fix it. It's going to take a couple of, it's going to take one hour to fix two hours later. It's still not there. And Minnie's like, what's going on? And I go, Minnie, I know that we're um, waiting for this other dress, but in my Jeep, I have this dress that there's this new designer named like Alexander. Very, care- very careful about how you approached it. No, because it's my innocence. My name, right. I was young. But were you nervous this, um, that she of was? Of course, okay. I was scared. That she wasn't going to say yes to the dress? Yes. I just wanted her to see it. We were bored. Right. I said, we're waiting for this other dress. This Alexander, he's a new designer, Alexander McQueen. He's works for Givenchy. Can we just try it on? She goes, sure. My whole car that was green <laughs> inside. So I pull this dress out. She puts it on. It is gorgeous. Just gorgeous. And she just loved it. beautiful. She loves it. We're done. Oh my god. We I took love that. we took a we took half the train off because it was a you know it was a panel. Did she make Matt Damon squirm? She made the world squirm really squirm. Did. That she was did. the picture that ran a two pager in Vanity Fair I Oscar of and Dustin Hoffman is holding that. So now everyone knows who Minnie is. It was not the Oscars. She gets nominated for an Oscar. Everybody was throwing dresses at me. People were offering me money. So that was kind of your big It was kind a of big break. moment. Your big moment. Your big That was break. a big, no, big The shift. big moment was Kim Basinger winning that dress with that green Escada dress, which, by the way, she wanted a green dress, but Escada made me three dresses, one in white, one in black, and one, and one in peach color. And like, why do I not have a green dress like I asked? Oh, my God. And I had to go buy the fabric. We made the, they, Escada flew you know, all the sewers, they made the dress. We did our final fitting the day of the Oscars. And I was talking, you were mentioning about me. Yes. She lived in Woodland Hills and the car was picking her up at two 30. It is now two o'clock. I'm in West Hollywood. I get on the one Oh one to drive over there. And I'm like, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. (laughs) The stress. You know what I do? I'm like, the car's going to pick her up at 2.30. I go on the, the, the side. Last lane. The last. No, it was the. The, the carpooling. That lane. The yeah. pulling lane. Oh. And I start driving. The shoulder. The shoulder. The shoulder. Yeah. I start driving. I get stopped by a cop. Oh, no. And I jump out and he goes, don't get back in your car. And I go, officer, you have no idea what's happening. And I'm crying. I go, I have a client. Her name's Kim Basinger. She's getting nominated for an Oscar. She needs to be dressed at 2.30. We are going to the Oscars. He escorted me to her house with everything. <laughs> that is All the, the best. And that's the he best literally, story. And he dropped me off. And he goes, I'm not kidding. He goes, I said, that's her dress. Look. Oh, he my God. Got to meet her. We dressed her. I got there literally 225 Took five minutes to dress her in that beautiful green dress. Wow. She won that Oscar. That's a Oscar. great, great story. So once she won the Oscar, that just opened that the floodgates for and you. That opened the floodgates. But not only that, the mini driver red Halston dress with the fur. And everybody tried to fight me and wanted rubies, rubies, rubies. And I said, no, I want emeralds. I want emeralds how, with this how dress. How you... It was all, all the details. Ta- but how did you all of a sudden have this talent to know what to do? You didn't. You I, were never trained. I I just knew what I liked, 
And they're like, no, no, no. And I'm like, I want her in emeralds with that red. I don't want her all in red. I want, and again, Vogue Anna Wintour has never duplicated an Oscar look from head to toe, except for Minnie Driver in that outfit. Wow. You know, that was amazing. Okay. Amazing. Okay. So now things are totally shifting and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you are like on the map in a big way. Right, Kate so Blanchett becomes my client, which is, Ooh, which is amazing. Which huge. we know that was huge. Of course. You know? All right. So now I have kind of a, a list of questions and these are mm-hmm. going to be rapid fire questions. Let's do it. Okay. So you're going to just kind of answer in a couple words. Okay. okay. All right. So overall, tell me, how do you like working with big celebrities? Love it? Hate it? Love it. What's, your, just fa- what's it. your favorite part about it? I love the collaboration. I love talent. And my roster of great girls that I work with, each and every one are super talented or crazy talented, but I love it. How involved are they with your choices? I love collaboration. I want them to love it as much as I love it. Do you have some clients that are just like, whatever you want, do what you want, I trust you? Or is it always a collaboration? Um, Of course, I, I think it's a combination of both. Yes. Okay. And have you ever had a session where they just hate everything and you start over? Absolutely. And so that's part of the game. And that's okay. Do you that's feel, even better. Does that, is that hard on you or you're, it's just part of the game? It's part of my job. Okay. I'm not lazy. All right. Let's, if you're not happy, if you're not 150% happy, I don't want you to wear it. Okay. You don't have to tell us who, but I think it's important that anyone who's successful has always had snags. Um, have you ever lost a client? Oh my God. Constantly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez, Louise. And do you learn from those moments and try to do better? Or do you feel like it just wasn't meant to be? Absolutely. Both? It's both. You know, I've lost someone dear, 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 dear to me that I loved so, so much because I was unable to go to her and tell her a situation, you know, that happened. So, you know, I was blamed for something and I was too young and too afraid to talk. Now I'm not afraid. Do you lose your confidence when you lose lose a client or do you just kind of move on? No, it humbles you. It does humble you. I'm sure. It doesn't lose my confidence, but it does humble you. Okay. All right. What keeps you up at night? Um, What keeps me up at night? Nothing. Nothing. I'm a good sleeper. You are? Tailoring. Tailoring. Tailoring doesn't even. (laughs) No, I'm a great sleeper. Okay. I have a sign next to my bed. This too shall pass and everything's going to be okay. Awesome. Do you feel like you've reached success? Oh my God. I think I'm still wanting to reach even more success. So you have a lot more to do. A lot more, a lot more to learn, a lot more to do, a lot more to teach. Do you feel I like you're, it all. do you feel like you're learning from younger generations that are younger than you? What, what are Absolutely. you learning from them? I want to know their eye. Okay. You know, I'm a 43-year-old, I'm a 43-year-old woman that knows what I love and I can learn from the young generation know what their eye is. Right. Interesting. So you feel like you're constantly learning from them. Always. Do you ever feel like their fashion taste is not mine or you do you feel like it's important that you have to start adapting? I'm always going to know more. Because I know all the trends that have happened. I've seen everything. Well, because like, for example, my kids, you know, I have have a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old. And right now what's really in style is they're kind of dressing a little androgynous. Mm -hmm. You know, everything's Mm -hmm. kind of gender fluid. Well, everything's like street style. Well, it's just, yeah. And it's just like, I'm like, yeah, it's not very feminine. You know, it kind of, whatever. It's not cool. Being feminine is not cool. No, I've finally given it up. I'm like, okay, I'm going to let them express themselves the way they are. But I guess at a certain point, do you have to start accepting kind of a younger generation's kind of point of view? I love their point of view. You learn from them at their point of view with Everything that I know, your that's where the goal. magic is. Of course. I agree with that. All right. What is your advice for a younger generation? Work your ass off. Nothing worth anything is going to come easy. And by the way, you are stronger. And when you think, I can't do this anymore, that's when you should keep really on push. doing what you're doing and push and work harder. Perfect. Okay. Well, I think you've answered all my questions. I know Jordan has a few questions for you, so I'm going to let her ask her questions. Okay. So mine are more on the sense of where the business is going, because Mm. I'm sure you, Mm. even with your clients, 
are experiencing mm-hmm. it. And I know we've spoken about and it we've before. And ta- we've spoken about it. Um, basically, where do you see the future of celebrity styling going? I think it's going to continue going the way there are because people are always, always going to do movies. I think my anger comes from the studios taking advantage of us wanting to do what we do and wanting to lower our rates. That's not fair. It's not right. You know, when they give you a very low day rate and say all in, it's like, how can you do your, my job? How can I do my job? You're not even giving me my tools to even have a working wage. Is the reason that's happening is just because there's an explosion of stylists Of course now? it is. Got it. When you have young stylists say, I'm going to do it for free. What, what how, is that? How do you compete against First that? of all, that's illegal. Right. Secondly, if you bought your bracelet, that bracelet for X amount of dollars, you're going to cherish it and love it because right. you purchased it. But if I gave it to you and you lost it, yeah. it means nothing. Agreed. We have to earn everything. And studios are not allowing us, Are they, they don't care. And just side backstory, we're obviously asking for fair wages, which for doing our job, but on top of which comes with styling, there's always expenses. So it's like, let's say you need a shoe stretched and that's $35 out of my pocket. No, it's need- not out of your pocket. It's your client's pocket. Right. But we don't always have as, as a younger human who has younger clients who can't afford that or won't pay for it. That's not true. Um, well, that's not true. Well, that saying- is not true. I have up and coming actresses. Right. And if they want to work with me, I sit them down and I go, these are the rules. Right, but you have the luxury of doing that. You Whereas, have the luxury as well. But she, I think what, what Jessica is saying is that mm-hmm. you have to lay out your rules ahead of time and people have to decide if they want to work with you and you have to decide oh, if you I want mean, to work with them. I won't do it. I'm just saying for my friends and you know people I know who are styling and doing red carpet and paying out of pocket and can't pay their rent because they're paying for their clients' tailoring. For me, I've I've been a no so, person for years. So, so let's get this – Straight, mm-hmm. what you're telling me, your friend, friends, because okay. I can say, your friends, yes. okay, she or he mm-hmm. are taking a client, paying for their tailoring, and they can't pay for their rent, mm-hmm. and they think this is going to give them a career. I, I have no idea, it's not, it, well, exactly. it will not, it will not, it does not make sense if you know your worth. And it doesn't – I would rather wait tables mm-hmm. if I was young than go work for somebody and pay for their tailoring. Who's who? I've had actresses who are up and coming. I can't afford tailoring. I go, then let's find something that doesn't need to be tailored. But I really like this dress. Then you need to pay for tailoring. I go, I unfortunately have to pay my assistance. I can't pay for your tailoring. I can't believe they even asked that. Oh, they asked for a lot more than that. Right. But it's like – there are plenty of people out there, trust me. That will do it. That will do it. Because and they want the They, they want, want to post on Instagram and say they worked with XXO on well, you Instagram know thing, screwing then, everything then up. Instagram is not going to pay for their rent. Right. But there's so many of them out there that it's basically what it's turned into. Where right. And I'm going to tell you something else. The mm-hmm. people that work for free, the people that are paying for the tailoring, the people are... They're all of those for, people, they're ruining it for they're everybody. They're ruining it for everybody. Exactly. And not only that... They're not going to keep those clients. Maybe, maybe you guys should all start a coalition. Or like a union. union. Something. We've I mean, talked about it. Nobody so. does it. Well, thank you for your words of wisdom. Yes, thank you. Jessica, I wanted to thank you so much for being here. Um, you were incredibly kind of honest and raw about you know your childhood and what you went through. Um, but I think the big um, kind of learning for anyone listening is just because you have a shitty start does not mean yeah. – that you can't turn things around because, wow, I look at you and I just, I, I, I honestly can tell you, like when you told me all that, when we met, I was like, you were the warmest like person, like one of the warmest people I've ever met. So I was like really taken back to think, wow, how did she go through all this and still turn out to be such a good egg? Puppies. Doggies. (laughs) There you go. Doggies. Doggies will do it for sure. But you know, the fact that you have found the strength, you know, within to overcome and accomplish all that you have is mm-hmm. such, such an inspiration to me. So thank you. Thank, thank you, you for telling your story, for being honest, 
for other people who are out there who are listening right now that may be going through, you know, abuse, um, you know, whether it's physical abuse or sexual abuse, you know, please, please, you know, speak up. Don't hold it in. Speak up. Always speak up. And even if someone shuns you or they don't want to listen, there's going to be that one person that's going to listen and they're going to turn your life around. Yeah. So really, really important advice. And Jordan, thank you for joining us today and you. You know, asking your questions and giving your perspective. And, and thank I, you for your honesty, Jessica. It's always well received on my end. Awesome. And I think that that's a wrap.